Now, if we were to look in Scripture in Psalm 51, David concurs with this feeling, this sense of regret and remorse. And this Psalm 51 was penned from his heart after he had blindly stepped into the sins of both adultery and murder. And he's overwhelmed with this sense of shame. And he says in verse 3, he says, For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. My sin is always before me. Do Do you know what that's like even as christians we can feel this way now this is this is his psalm of repentance as he's pouring out his heart and at the moment in the very beginning of this psalm he says my sin is always before me maybe lisa and some others who have been to an abortion clinic and they're counseling and maybe this is a person's second abortion and she Here's a story unfolding of a woman in her first abortion and just overwhelmed with guilt and wondering, is there any forgiveness for something like this? And because she fails to find it, it's kind of like, I just give up. This is just life. Live with it. And so she finds herself in a similar predicament, and she's ready for a second abortion. Can I ask you this? Have you ever, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you, you believe Jesus has forgiven me of my sins, but you're, you would say with, with the psalmist, my sin is always before me. It's as if the devil replays this scene over and over in your mind. And every time you come across a situation that's similar to that one, you begin to feel the shame all over again. And the guilt robs you of your breath. You have regrets. What do we do with regrets? How do you handle your regrets? Do you ever experience regrets? What is the solution? Now, I'm going to give you caution here. Before we diagnose this problem of regrets, we need to realize that We can misdiagnose a problem like this. And I'm going to suggest to you in the Christian culture in America that it's very popular to misdiagnose this. Let me just give you two illustrations here to explain to us the significance should we misdiagnose a problem, and especially a significant problem like this, dealing with regrets. Someone who finds it hard to get rid of these regrets and they're daily wrestling with shame, and they just can't seem to find forgiveness. I was, several years ago, we uh, had a, a car issue problem. Took the car into the, the, our mechanic, and $700 later, he reported that he fixed the $200 problem. Do you understand? when They start throwing parts into it until finally, wow, the car's, Scar's starting now, and it's working great, but it was a $200 fix that took him an extra $500 to diagnose. For me, that was a $500 loss. Can you say ouch with me, please? Ah, how about this one? A doctor 
you go, you go to a, uh, your doctor and, he, and you explain to him, I have a high fever. I feel nauseous constantly. I have a swollen throat. I, I can barely hear out of my ears. My eyesight is kind of fuzzy. And the doctor says, I have a perfect solution for you. It's a little complicated, but are you ready for this? So for your high fever, I think we're going to need to remove your appendix. And to cure this nausea, I'm sure that the problem is the gallbladder. We're going to need to remove the gallbladder. And you know what? That swollen throat, I'm a little concerned. We're going to need to take out your tonsils as well. But your eyes, that's a little simpler. We can just give you ears, rather. We're just going to give you a hearing aid. And for your eyes, I'm going to recommend you see an eye doctor, and he'll probably prescribe glasses. You don't like his his diagnosis and and how he's going to solve this problem. So you decide to go get a second opinion, and you see another doctor. And he takes a few minutes, he sums it up, and he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. You have a common cold. Yeah. And I'm going to recommend that yet because of this common cold, obviously, there's a little bit of a, a fever here. You're starting to feel some nauseous with the drainage, and your throat is swollen. Yeah, that's going to happen. And your ears are getting clogged, so it's hard to hear. And your eyes, when you wake up in the morning because of, of just all of this, uh, yeah, the, the, the congestion, it's making your, the, uh, your eyes secrete, and so it, you have blurry vision. So here's what I'm going to recommend. Take a bunch of vitamin C. Get plenty of rest. And, and for your immune system, let's take some echinacea. Now, how does that compare to removing your appendix, your gallbladder, your tonsils, getting a hearing aid, and being prescribed glasses? How many of you would prefer the diagnosis of a common cold? Okay, okay you, you get what I'm saying here. Sometimes our diagnosis and the solution to the problem can be pretty serious if we're wrong. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in American culture today, we have diagnosed this problem. And as I went online, this, this is what I found out on, on the internet. And some of these were secular websites and some of them were Christian websites. All of them in the field of psychology. Here's the title for one of them. Six Ways to Forgive Yourself. This is the problem. You need to learn to forgive yourself. How many of you ever heard that is a solution? The, your problem is that you need to forgive yourself. A show of hands, you've ever heard that solution to the problem. And, and you don't have to raise your hand on this. How many have ever given that as a solution? You, you just need to learn to forgive yourself. It's very common. We find this in Christian psychology all the time. You can find it in discipleship manuals. I was reading one just the other week, and part of their their as they were going through how you grow in Christ, they stumbled across this and he said, and they said, you need to learn to forgive yourself. So I, came, I went online and came across this particular article, Six Ways to Forgive Yourself. I, I kept searching. The next title I came across, exactly this, 10 Ways to Forgive Yourself. I kept looking. Guess what I found? A third article. You know what was entitled? 12 Ways to Forgive Yourself. And it's almost as if, okay, well, I'm not going to just settle for six ways, man. I'm going to read the article about 12 ways. I want to find out every single way that I can forgive myself. But is that really the problem? Here is a minor detail that we might miss. That solution is found nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us you need to forgive yourself. Now, we see the problem 
Let me dig just a little bit deeper here. We have guilt, shame, regret. It actually leads to feeling angry with ourselves. How many of you, don't show your hands, how many of you have ever played this tape recording in your mind? I was so stupid. See, that's regret. How could I have done that? And you ask God to forgive you, and yet the the self-loathing even continues the regret, the shame of it. And then someone comes up to you, problem, you need to forgive yourself. We feel so unworthy that there is no punishment that, that would be sufficient. And we're wanting, okay, well, God has forgiven me, but we truly believe we need to continue to be punished. So we refuse, as this person, we're refusing to forgive ourselves. You see, we're not wanting to be let off the hook. And my question then is this. Is that really the problem? See, we ch- here's what's really happening. You are willing to say, okay, well, I'll accept God's forgiveness. But is that the solution? Because if you don't think it is, and you're still angry with yourself, you have basically said, God I guess my standards are higher than yours. You see, you're a little bit lenient on the forgiveness end of things, but, you know, not not, not me. See, my standards are higher. I am a better judge than you. Do you hear that? That is really what we're saying. But this morning, I want to focus on a different solution, and it is not Forgiving yourself. Because if, if, that, if you're left with that solution, forgive, your, forgive myself, then you have actually arrived at what you believe to be a solution that is not. And if, if you got a gash that required 36 stitches across your, your shoulder here, and someone came up to you and said, don't worry, I have a Band-Aid for your problem. And they put the Band-Aid on and you bleed out. That really did not fix the problem. I think it suggests to you equally, neither will forgive yourself, be what you truly need. So what do you need? What do we need? What is the fix-it, if you will? Romans 8, verse 1. It says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is only one solution that Scripture gives us to our sin problem, church, and it is God's forgiveness. May I suggest to you that forgiveness is a canceling of a debt. You know, recently, we, uh, last year, we, we were able to pay off our house. What a, what a tremendous load, you know, taken from our shoulders, that debt was now absolved. The bank, uh, it took a bit, but the bank, they made a big deal about it, and, and they sent us a letter. It's official, basically saying, you owe us nothing. The debt is canceled. It's over. You own your home outright, and we are absolved from any further payments to the bank. If, they were to, if I were to send them a payment... I'm hoping they wouldn't keep it. They would probably send me back my check or send me back a check. 
and say, what are you doing? Your debt is canceled. It is forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we think that we can forgive ourselves, number one, can you cancel your own debt? I mean, that's really what we're saying. If we're saying that you can forgive yourself, can you really cancel your own debt? Yeah, just the other day, I bought a house and uh, I borrowed money from myself. What? Does that make sense to anybody here? <laughs> if it does, please, I want to see you afterwards. But the truth is, we, we, we can never be indebted to ourselves. Unless we have this issue that psychologists call multiple personality. But we, we don't, and, and it's basically the point is you cannot, you don't have the authority to forgive yourself, okay? You cannot hold yourself liable. You cannot be indebted to yourself. So what are you forgiving? See, the real solution is not us forgiving ourselves, but it is fully and fully thoroughly, understanding and embracing and walking out God's forgiveness. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of my time here explaining why this is so significant, because so many Christians today truly wrestle with the depth and the extent of God's forgiveness for us in Christ Jesus by the cross. This is deep. Because if we simply put a band-aid on the problem, you will miss what God truly wants you to grasp and you may very well, spiritually anyway, bleed out. Let's not put a band-aid on this issue. Let's truly plumb the depths and understand God's solution. So if you're in a situation and someone is simply saying, I just can't forgive myself, you, I, I would appreciate it. If you were to tell them, you know what, I don't think that's really the issue. I think what you really need to do is you need to understand and accept God's forgiveness. Oh, I understand Christ out on the cross for my sins and I've, well, apparently you don't grasp this. And can I say that sometimes we can think we understand something when we truly do not. So let's do that. Let's go through this and let's look at this concept of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Now, I already mentioned to you, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. And God basically is saying, you are no longer indebted to me. And you cannot be indebted to yourself. Romans 3.23, you're probably familiar with this. It's one of the verses that we use in evangelism, and it says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and the glory of God is simply his perfections, his love to the max, his holiness to the max, infinity and beyond, if you will. That is God's glory. It is, the, it is the reflection, it is the radiance of these character perfections of who God is. Now, we see that, for example, in the sun. We, can, we, we say that we see the sun, but technically, we really see the light 
that shines from the sun. That light is the rate would be similar to the radiance of God's glory. And we personally, compared to the radiance of God's glory, we fall way far short. That is sin. The Greek word meaning to miss the mark. We, we're, we're all there. And as a result of our sin, we are guilty. We're guilty. We are, we are in need of God's forgiveness. So when we're looking at the cross, let's understand that there is nobody in this room or out there in the world who is exempt from this problem of sin. We all face it. We all struggle with it. We all wrestle with its guilt and with its shame, unless, of course, we're a sociopath. But we, we have to deal with these regrets. But when we come to Christ, if we continue to carry these regrets and shame with us, there is an issue here, and I'm going to suggest that we need to now move further in our understanding of the cross. Yes, we are all sinners, and we are guilty, but number two, turn with me to, (coughs) excuse me, Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 53.6. I love this passage. It's another one that we share um, when we're evangelizing, and it says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sins of us all. Who is him in this passage? Jim is, my son is having to do a paper for his, uh, uh, one of his classes. It's at the University of Central Florida, secular university, and he has this opportunity to talk about the Messiah. And Isaiah 53 from what he and I have talked about, is going to be one of the passages he's going to be looking at, whatever verses here. Um, But in this one right here, what an incredible picture of who, what? The the nation of Israel? Uh, Isaiah himself? Who is he? Who is God, or whom has God laid yours and my sins upon? It would have to be Jesus, absolutely. He is the promised Messiah. This verse, verse 6, was given 700 years before Jesus was even born. God was able to, he knew the future. This prophesies the very thing that happened on the cross in which God took your sins, placed them on his son Jesus. So Jesus then took our sins upon himself. He took our sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians 6.21. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 6.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to confess to you, and I realize that the NIV text note doesn't say uh, that he became sin for us. It says he became a sin offering for us. Can I assure you the word offering is not in the Greek, um, but it's simply a help there for us to understand something that is beyond my understanding, that Jesus 
became sin for us. And, and all the, the picture that I have in my mind is here is the spotless lamb of God that we sung about this morning. Here is Jesus himself dying on the cross. Imagine, I don't know, some movie that you have seen that, that, that's good anyway and accurate. And Jesus hanging on the cross and it's becoming cloudy and there's darkness now on the face of the earth. And there is actually a, 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 a something that is, uh, was found in the archives of Rome in which it was, they say it's a letter that Pilate wrote to Caesar Augustus at the time and his depiction of that day was, as he's giving an account of it, was simply this, it was so dark you could see the stars. And people have been trying ever since to account for this darkness. They even suggested in that century that it was a solar eclipse, which would be absolutely impossible because during a solar eclipse, you do not see, you, you, the, the moon is, during the Passover, the moon is full and it's impossible to have a solar eclipse at this time. And so I'm going to suggest to you that there is only one reason for this darkness, and it's very simply that Jesus, when he died on the cross, God placed yours and my sins on him, on him. That he became sin for us. That I, I, I don't know what it would be like in any way, shape, or form to live a spotless, sinless life and then have attributed to you all the sins of Mike Curtis. I don't know what that would be like. Now multiply that by a couple of hundreds of million or billions, really, and that's what Jesus endured for you and me. And perhaps he's speaking metaphorically here. Jesus became sin for you. And the sins of the Father, because he realized that sin must be dealt with. He could not wave some magical wand over your problem and voila, you know, God just will forgive. No, the, there are consequences for our rebellion. That is what sin is. We've rebelled against God. And so the, our second point here is that the Father placed yours and my sin upon Jesus Christ. And he paid for them. The third point then, if you were to go back to Isaiah 53, it would, you'll find this. Well, actually, I want to read the whole verse and not just a portion of it. So turn with me, if you would, Isaiah 53. And it says this. It says, I'm going to back up. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This is actually quoted, I believe, in Matthew 8, and it's referring to Jesus' life. During Jesus' life, he carried our sorrows. He healed the sick and so on. Matthew quotes this very verse. Yet, in spite of this awesome thing that he healed sicknesses, yet we considered him smitten by God. When he was hang hanging on the cross, yeah, you deserve this. That's the mentality here. You're, you're stricken, you're smitten by God. This is God's punishment upon you. That's how we felt. This is what's prophesied 700 years before the cross. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But Isaiah is saying, this is the truth. But he was pierced for our 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus was punished for you. And so consequently, when Jesus was, he he absorbed all of the punishment that we deserved. And yet, when we are struggling with these regrets, we are wanting our punishment to continue. And we have failed to truly grasp the depth of this passage that the punishment that brought you peace was upon Jesus. He suffered entirely everything necessary so that you would no longer need to be punished. To this degree, church, when Jesus hung on the cross, they, they list them out, the seven last words of Jesus. Now, if you're listening to someone on their deathbed, they generally will not tell you a joke or something. They'll, they'll try to they'll give you something that's meaty, something that's important, significant. And Jesus, when he is dying on the cross, gives us seven significant things. Here's one of them. He said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And by it is finished, he meant this. There is no further punishment that you need to endure. You do not, you you should not believe that you need to be punished more. That maybe if I go through this difficulty, yes, God is just punishing me. No, that punishment that we want to go through or that we want to endure, that we want to inflict on ourselves, that anger that we're directing towards ourselves, Jesus is saying, no, I took all of that for you. That's mine. That's what I died for. And the result of this punishment that he took upon himself, it says that it brings us peace with God. The sins that separate us from God, they're gone. There's no more. They are washed away. And this is, if we were to go back to Psalm 51, this is what he brings up. Cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be clean. I want to ask you this question. Do you truly believe that all of your sins have been washed away? Completely washed away. Because if they are completely washed away, then what are your regrets about? What are you holding on to? Because Jesus does not hold on to them. And may I suggest he is a better judge than you. So if the great heavenly judge says you're acquitted, there there is nothing against you. I'm looking at your record here, and it says actually in in that passage he became sin for us and that he actually gave us his righteousness. I'm looking at the record here, and I don't don't see your sins. I see them. They're, They're gone, and I actually see the righteousness of my son. You have a spotless record. Is this a little bit too hard to to grasp for some of us? 
Because when we are wrestling with this forgiveness, the, 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 the issue is not I need to forgive myself, but I need to fully grasp and apprehend God's forgiveness. Because then the last point is that I want to bring up from the cross is this, that he, as a result of these first three, he has redeemed us. Do you know what redeem means? It means to purchase. And purchasing is integrally connected the redemption is integrally connected with this idea of forgiveness. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. They're inseparable. They're inseparable. Do you know why? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. This is where the concept of redemption comes into full focus because the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt and God is saying, I am going to free you from this slavery. Slaves were owned. That is not the concept of slavery. You're owned by someone. And in this case, the Egyptians owned Israel as a nation, owned slaves. For them to be freed means that that slavery must end, that they must, their, their indebtedness, if you will, to Egypt must be canceled out and they must be bought by a new owner. And, and, God understands this concept, and so for, for him to say, I'm freeing you from slavery, he introduces this concept in Exodus 6, verse 6, of redemption. And he says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with mighty acts of judgment. And that judgment was specifically focused on Egypt and all of Egypt's gods. And God judged them. But with these mighty acts and this rescuing, he purchased them for himself. He redeemed them. The debt completely canceled out. The ownership of this nation has now been transferred. Now, do you follow me? Your indebtedness to sin, your indebtedness to the enemy, because he ruled and reigned over you before Christ. You are sin addicts. You are slaves to sin. And as a result, the enemy owned you. You were his. You were under his dominion and his authority. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, made available for you when you believed that you would no longer be owned by the enemy. But you would now be owned by the king of kings. You would be owned by Jesus himself. He would be your king. He would be your master. And so consequently, we are no longer owned by our enemy. We are owned by our King Jesus. And that, and that ownership now has transferred over to him. We have been redeemed. So let me say this. If 
we fail to grasp this, I did say that the significance of putting a Band-Aid on such a gaping wound could potentially cause someone to bleed out. What then is the consequence? If we just offer the, the Christian psychological uh, babble of you just need to forgive yourself, and rather than pointing them to the one and only one who can truly forgive, we will be left with a few things that we need to consider. Number one, that there is need for further punishment. If we don't grasp the full extent of the cross and what the punishment that he endured, then we would have to say, well, no, it is not finished. That No, I do need to continue to be punished because apparently I don't believe that the cross is sufficient for me. And you can, you're going to go through life Constantly trying to forgive yourself, not fully grasping the forgiveness of God, and consequently coming to conclusions over and over and over again that you must be punished. That there's still something that needs to be worked out in your life. And it's for this reason, failing to apprehend the full extent of God's forgiveness by the cross, that the Roman Catholic Church invented this concept called purgatory. Now, yes, it is written in one place in the Apocrypha, but in the Dark Ages, it became a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And it is based on this, that the cross of Christ is not sufficient. There still is a payment for our sins. Yes, when you believed in Jesus, your sins were washed away, but all of those sins that have accumulated in your life, you're going to now have to pay for those. And we have failed. They have they failed to grasp the significance of Isaiah 53, 5, that, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus. He paid it all, and there's nothing more that I need do. And as a result, when you see Benjamin Martin in the introduction to the Patriot, he is wrestling with this issue of such a deep regret that he feels so ashamed of. His, his, his oldest son constantly throughout the movie comes to him, Dad, what is it that you did so that these men around you, they respect you? It, it, it's perhaps a little bit more they feared him because they knew Benjamin Martin was capable of incredible brutality and vengeance. So much so that it was so hard for him to live with. And he truly believed that because of that, he was going to have to suffer his life. And as a result, he lost his two sons. And it's all his fault. And consequently, he's going to have to go through the rest of his life dealing with with regrets. If we fail to embrace and understand the cross, then we're going to feel as if we need to be punished constantly. This is very real. The second thing that we need to, to realize is if we fail to grasp the cross and the forgiveness by the cross, and continue to hear echoing in our minds, you just need to forgive yourself with that inadequate answer, then we're going we're gonna to have doubts about our eternal destiny. 
We're going to wonder, am, am I truly saved? You know, if, if there's still more punishment that I could possibly endure, what if beyond purgatory, what if there is hell? What, how, what certainty do I have? I want to tell you in 1 John 5.13, it says, These things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And Jesus wants us to know that in him is a certainty. There is no question. If you believe that you must be punished, you are focusing on yourself. And God's grace forces us to look beyond ourselves to him who is able to do the impossible. And that is forgive your sins because you can't. Nobody truly can. And so consequently, we must realize that if he paid it all, then we have a, a future that is certain. And that is heaven itself. Number three, that there is a sense of unworthiness that we can feel if we fail to understand the implications of the cross. There's a sense that we're not under grace, but that we're under law and that we fail to live up to God's expectations. And you're going to feel unworthy to serve. You're going to feel unworthy to be to receive any blessings of God, you're going to fail to feel worthy to be married. You're going to fail to feel worthy for promotions. Now, here, here's the fine line that we need to understand. The, the focus for us is, is all about me sometimes, isn't it? It's all about you. And Jesus, he's trying to say to you and speak into your spirit, it's not all about you. It's all about me, Jesus. I paid everything. There is no condemnation against you. The issue is not my worthiness at all. Of course I'm unworthy. In and of myself, I'm completely unworthy. That's why the verse continues and it says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says when you believed in him, you were placed in Christ Jesus and you received a full inheritance as sons because of that. And that brings me to the last thing that I want to just spend a little bit of time right now. And it is this. It is this whole concept then of shame. Can you turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 11? Romans 10, 11. And when we begin to understand these things that I've shared with you this morning, you begin to uh, grasp the depth of the truth of this passage right here in Romans 10, 11. <laughs> and he's quoting, <clears throat> excuse me, he's quoting from an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 28, 16, but it says here, Romans 10, 11. He says, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Did you, have you trusted in Jesus? You will never be put to shame. To shame. Now, he's not saying you're never going to do something really stupid and embarrass yourself. How many of you have ever done something really stupid and you've embarrassed yourself? 
Okay, if your hand's not up, you're a liar. The truth is we've all done this. That's just a part of who you are. To err is human. To really foul things up takes a computer, as they say. We all make mistakes. We all blow it. And we all will tend to humiliate ourselves. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying there is nothing that anyone can legitimately point their finger at you and shame you with. And be able to say you are guilty. That shame has been removed. As a matter of fact, you may remember the the story back in Joshua chapter 5. Remember going through the book of Joshua last year. And in Joshua, they come out under the yoke of slavery from Egypt. And for 40 years, they're in the desert. And now Joshua picks up the story in which they go into the land and they take the land. And you remember right after they cross the Jordan River. They Just about a mile or two in, they set up camp. It becomes their headquarters, and they call that place Gilgal. Do you remember this? And they are getting ready. I can just imagine a table, a big table spread out, maybe with maps as they've sent spies throughout the land, and they've mapped the land, and, and and, and Joshua is setting up a military strategy and various military campaigns, and He is laying, he's got his generals pulled together, and he's explaining the the strategies that he is going to use. That's headquarters. And they're about to step into these military exploits, and they are about to inherit this land that was promised to them over 400 years ago to their father Abraham. When they set up camp there, that is when they name that town Gilgal. And it means this, the reproach is rolled away. Do you remember that? You, and, and, and Joshua, God through, through Joshua tells them, You're, the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away from you. You no longer need to be ashamed that you are slaves. You are no longer slaves, but you are now inheriting this promise. And can I ask you, who inherits the property, the estate? Does the slave inherit it or does the heir inherit it? Tell me, church. The heir. You are no longer slaves. You are heirs and heirs according to his promises. You are children of God. You have been bought. You have been brought into his house, if you will, to be made heirs. You were a slave, but now you are an heir. And the reproach and the shame of all of that in the past, if it includes adultery, abortions, or even murder, all of it has been washed away, and there is nothing that is held against you. The shame, I'm sorry, the the shame of what? Because God forgives, and he has washed it away, and it is no longer before him. And so scripture puts it this way. Jeremiah says, he forgets. Isn't that amazing? God forgives. And he forgets. There's no shame that we should bear. He who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Perhaps the answer in all of this is that because of the cross, we need to realize we are actually unable to accuse ourselves. To accuse yourself of what? On what grounds? If you were to take the case before the, the heavenly judge, he would say, I'm sorry, but there is no longer any evidence to which you might be found guilty. We're looking in the, what do they call that room where they hold the, the evidence room, okay? We can't find your case anywhere. We looked in the box and guess what? There's nothing in it. We can't find any of the evidence. It's all gone. It's been washed away, as it were. The shame that we feel, it's gone. It's not there. It's smoke and mirrors. Whatever shame that you feel today is from this one source, and this one source only. It is from the accuser of the brothers who, according to Revelation 12, was hurled down from the very presence of God forever, overcome by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. Your testimony is the blood of the Lamb that's been applied to your life, that has washed you clean, that no one can point the finger and shame you any longer because the price has been paid. You are no longer slaves. That reproach is rolled away. You are now heirs of the King. And so when you stand before God, he doesn't point the finger. He, he looks in the evidence bag and there's nothing. You are no longer guilty. There is no shame. The devil who whispers these lies and brings up the past to you, Every time, listen to this, every time he brings up your past, you do this. You remind him of his future. Every time the devil whispers lies into your ear, it is only to supplant and undermine the truth and the power and, and the full implications of the cross. I belong to one person. I am an heir of the Most High King. And I am dressed in royal clothes. I am no longer a pauper or a slave. I am no longer indebted to anyone. And I refuse to listen to the gossip of the enemy. And so he has been cast down from heaven, no longer able to appear before God like he did in Job chapter 1. Never again. And in being cast down, he is actually overcome by the blood of the lamb and that that blood that was applied to your life, your testimony, and the only one he can appeal to with his false accusations and his gossip is not God. He has turned a deaf ear to all of that, but it is to you. And my question is, are you going to listen to him as he rants on and on and lies to you and seeks to deceive you? Or are you going to go to the word and Many more passages than the ones that I listed. And I, I realize I went through several of these this morning. Are you going to listen to God's truth? Or are you going to allow Satan to bend your ear? Because if he bends your ear, 
And you talk to someone and they say, oh, you just need to forgive yourself. You will miss the deep truth of God's forgiveness of you. That your debt that you owed to him because you sinned and were found guilty, that debt has been forever canceled, gone. God has forgotten, will never, ever bring it up to you. But Satan will. Satan will try. Here is a passage that I'm going to conclude with that I know for me as a young man dealing with this very issue, many of us, like me, we are the hardest on ourselves. And as I was just dealing with the deep truths of God's forgiveness and who God truly was, that he wasn't up there with folded arms with this scowl on his face, disappointed in Mike Curtis's performance, and man, just not living up to you fill in the blank, worthy of whatever. Of course, I'll never be worthy, but Jesus is. This passage was laid on my heart. And for the first time, I truly understood God's disposition towards me as his child, as his heir. And it's found in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Not kind of mighty to partially save. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I'm going to have us close in prayer. Can you stand with me? Can we do this, Jim? Can we just dim the lights a little bit? Uh, and, and I'm going to open the altars up this morning. And, and I would, uh, as we close in prayer, if God is speaking to your heart, if you've been hearing the voice of the enemy whispering these lies, I'm going to encourage you, come to the altar and let God speak these truths to you and free you forever from these false accusations and gossips and lies from the enemy. Can we do this? You can kill this light, Jim. Let's just humble our hearts right now before God. If someone ever told you you just need to learn to forgive yourself, can you just take that inadequate diagnosis and set it aside? And can you grasp this truth? Jesus died on the cross for you in your place. And apart from him, you will never find forgiveness. But today he calls to you and he offers you release from this prison, release from this weight of guilt and shame that so heavily weighs on your shoulders. And he is offering you peace with him this morning. And if you have never made that choice to follow Jesus, let's do that today, right now. The Bible says there's no recipe for this at all. I'm not going to walk you through a sinner's prayer. That's something that comes from your heart. The Bible simply says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm just going to encourage you, call on Jesus' name. Cry out to him to rescue you. As Peter stepped out into the water and focused on the waves and began to sink, he cried out, Jesus, save me. 
Can you do that today? Jesus is eager to save. If right now, maybe you've accepted Christ, and, but you just feel this weight of guilt on your shoulders. Let Jesus lift that right now. Let him lift that. That is not his work. He rejoices over you that sin. And he delights in 